They say October is the scariest month of the year. September was no picnic. There was plenty of fear. But the 10th month is special. So say the lessons. Black Monday, Black Tuesday, the 29 depression, the crash in 87, the panic of 1903. Is that a pattern or just random history? Do old patterns even matter in today's day and age? Or have we changed how we invest? Finally turn the page. We don't buy and sell with the seasons like traders in a cave. Search for patterns in the stars or clues in the waves. We strategize. We synchronize. We don't take risks to excess. We stay patient. We stay focused right here on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard and hello again to Ameriprise Financial, our sponsor for the Investopedia Express. Ameriprise Financial provides personalized, goal-based financial advice that can help you navigate today while staying on track of your long-term financial goals tomorrow. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see how confident you are about the advice you're receiving. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Well, September earned its reputation for being rough on U.S. equity markets as the month and the third quarter closed with losses. The S&P 500 fell 4.8% for the month, the Dow fell 4.3%, and the Nasdaq tumbled 5.4%. It was the first 5% drawdown for a major U.S. market in over 10 months. But October roared its way back with big gains to kick off the month. News out of Merck on Friday that its experimental pill for people sick with COVID-19 reduced hospitalizations and deaths by half. That put a charge into stocks, particularly the recovery trade. U.S. markets, though, are under pressure again to start the week. As we dive into the fourth and final quarter of the year, it's a good time to take stock of the stock market. The S&P 500 is up 16% year-to-date, and it's up 30% in the past year, up 100% over the past five years, and up 280% over the past decade, according to our friends at YCharts. I hope all you long-term index investors are enjoying this 28.5% average annual return over the past 10 years. And even though the S&P 500 is down about 5% from its all-time highs, that's a blip on the historical correction radar screen. Since 1980, the average year has experienced a max peak-to-trough correction of 14.2% for the S&P 500. We haven't seen one of those since, well, you know when. And the fourth quarter is historically the best quarter for stocks, as the third quarter is usually the worst. Stocks rise 3.8% on average during the fourth quarter, but the past seven times the S&P 500 was up 15% year-to-date heading into the final quarter of the year, the fourth quarter was higher every single time, up 5.8% on average, according to LPL Financial. Still, The new quarter brings all kinds of challenges into focus. The spreading Delta variant continues to disrupt schools and workplaces around the world, but new cases are starting to decline here in the U.S. China is suffering an energy crunch, and its government continues to pursue a regulatory crackdown across industries. The fate of China's Evergrande Group is still in limbo, as is its $304 billion in debt. It's missed at least one interest payment on that debt, and investors may be fearing the worst. As of the end of last year, Evergrande had more than 700 projects under construction covering 132 million square miles of total floor area in China. Ports continue to be congested from Shanghai to Long Beach, putting pressure on supply chains and elevating prices. Labor shortages continue across industries, and inflation is still here. Personal consumption expenditures climbed 3.6% in August compared to a year ago. That's the steepest annual rise since 1991. And have you looked at commodity prices lately? Don't look at it! Keep your eyes shut! Thanks, Indiana Jones, but we'll be okay. 
Coal prices, though, hit a record high. Lumber prices, they're back up 40% after crashing in August. Natural gas prices up 100% this year alone. Heating oil, 104%. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, that Texas tea, that's up 85% this year. And its cousin, Brent Crude, up 83%. Gasoline, 81%. Coffee, 77%. Cotton, aluminum, sugar, corn, and copper, all up around 50% or more this year. Gold prices, in case you're wondering down 7%. Consumers, though, we're hanging in. Consumer spending in August rose 0.8%, and personal income climbed 0.2%. Economists point to all the liquidity sloshing around the capital markets, which is keeping the tide high for now. Low interest rates are making borrowing cheap and making it high times for debt underwriting, at least for now. We've talked in past episodes about the massive amount of junk bonds being issued this year, but the flow is also heavy in the higher quality end of the pool where investment-grade debt likes to swim. Wall Street syndicate desks expect to see $90 billion to $100 billion of fresh U.S. investment-grade bond supply in October, and $20 billion of that is coming just this week. That's higher than the $80 billion that priced in October of last year, and significantly more robust than the $68 billion that came in 2019, according to Bloomberg. Those low rates may not be around for so long, though. The U.S. 10-year Treasury yield crossed 1.5% last week for the first time since March, but it slumped back during Friday's rally. But rates are rising around the world, and they're coming to these shores, too. Bond issuers know this, and they're trying to lock in those low, attractive rates before they do. And investors, well, they have an appetite for anything with yield. That appetite is extending into the options market as the notional value of options traded in 2021 has surpassed total stock market volumes for the first time ever. IPOs also continue apace. 94 companies went public in the most active third quarter in 21 years. Last week, we saw eyeglass retailer Warby Parker going public via a direct listing and shares popped 36% on opening day before giving up some of those gains later in the week. The big filing news came out of Rivian, the electric truck maker, which dropped its S1 filing with the SEC and is rumored to be raising around $8 billion when it goes public. It also plans to spend around $8 billion in the next few years as it ramps up production of electric trucks and delivery vans. Let's get set up for the week ahead. Although Congress narrowly managed to avert a U.S. government shutdown last Thursday, the debt ceiling looms as a major source of uncertainty unless lawmakers vote to raise or extend it by October 18th. Expect to hear more on that this week as time is running out before the Treasury Department exhausts what it calls extraordinary measures to prevent a default on interest payments on $28.4 trillion in federal debt. That could lead to a credit rating downgrade on U.S. bonds, the most widely held security on the planet. This week, we'll get an update on the strength of the U.S. labor market with ADP's National Employment Report and the Department of Labor's Non-Farm Payrolls Report for September, which comes out on Friday. The labor market continues to be challenging here in the U.S. as positions go unfilled and companies are operating on reduced capacity. Japan's Services Purchasing Managers Index will be released on Monday, while the U.S., India, and Europe follow on Tuesday and China's Cation Services PMI will be released this Thursday. The readings reflect managers' views on growth and their economic outlook from a wide variety of service industries. In the U.S., the services PMI is expected to have continued its 15-month growth streak in September on optimism about the recovery from the pandemic, despite those ongoing labor and supply shortages. 
While there's no official blue jeans economic indicator, although we should probably invent one, the closest we can come is to look at Levi Strauss's earnings on Wednesday. Apparel retailers have been boosting their profit margins this year by raising prices as they try to make up for steep losses in 2020. It's been working for retailers like Guess and Abercrombie & Fitch, and we should expect to hear more of the same for the blue jeans maker. Shares of Levi Strauss are up 18% so far this year, but down 19% from their recent highs. General Motors will hold an investor event this week to provide more details on its electric vehicle roadmap, its financial goals, and its vision as it tries to take the focus off of the chip shortage that is plaguing the auto industry. Last week, Ford announced $11 billion in new spending on four new plants in the U.S. to build electric vehicles, so it's GM's turn to make an impression. That's right, Hollywood is making a comeback. Led by James Bond over the weekend, No Time to Die, the latest 007 installment, and the last Bond film for Daniel Craig took in $119 billion in global box office sales over the weekend, and the fall movie season is looking strong. Venom from Sony Pictures is coming, and Let There Be Carnage from Warner Brothers, and the Many Saints of Newark from United Artists are all slated for release. But there is discord in Tinseltown. 60,000 of Hollywood's behind-the-scenes workers, including camera operators, script coordinators, and makeup artists, could soon go on strike, halting much of the movie and TV production that has finally resumed after the shutdown. The International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, took a vote over the weekend to strike, and most members are in favor. They're protesting a 2009 agreement that allowed streaming services with fewer than 20 million subscribers to pay workers lower than standard wages. It was intended to help streaming services become more popular at the end of what was known as the blockbuster era. But it's still around, and streaming services are the new bosses in Hollywood, and they're much bigger. These workers are demanding shorter days, more turnaround time, and better pay on the weekends. Common sense is often not so common in the capital markets, especially after the month we've just been through, especially after the past year and a half, actually. Stock investors have seen multiple cycles across sectors, manias sweeping through meme stocks and crypto, and mixed messages coming from policymakers. When I need a good dose of common sense and some strong fundamental analysis of stocks and sectors, I listen to Stephanie Link. She's the chief investment strategist and portfolio manager at Hightower Advisors, one of the largest independent investment advisors in the country with over $100 billion in assets under management. She's also a CNBC contributor and a columnist and one of the bright lights in the industry. Welcome to The Express, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's good to have you here. Well, September was not a lot of fun for equity investors, and it rarely is. But as a portfolio manager, how did you position yourself and Hightower for the volatility? And what are you doing now? Yeah, I mean, look, I think August and September were challenging months. And I think that the first half of October will also be just volatile in general. These are the seasonally kind of weakest periods in the market, if you will. And to be honest with you, I'm going to call 2021 the year of the rotation because that is exactly what it has been. I try to buy low. I try to sell high. I try to find good quality companies, number one or number two in their industry on sale. What does that even mean? That means the number one company, something happened so that the stock has fallen substantially and the valuation looks compelling. Why are you number one in your industry? Because you've got phenomenal market share. You've got a great balance sheet, good free cash flow. You've got a good management team, a proven management team, not only the CEO, 
but the, the bench, the executive bench. They know how to react quickly when things change. They use their free cash flow wisely. So all of those things are things that I look for when you do have these rotations. So I'm looking for opportunity. Where do we stand now? There's always something to worry about. And I worry, quite frankly, when we don't worry, because then that means I'm too complacent. So what are we worried right now about? Looks like, by the way, the Delta has kind of calmed down, but we still have to watch for that. We have supply chain issues. We've heard from a number of companies this week alone that have had serious issues with supply chain and getting merchandise and not being able to increase prices fast enough. We have the Washington debacle, as I would say, on both sides. So I'm not trying to go on either side. It's just a real challenge right now. And of course, you've got China. And China is slowing pretty rapidly. In fact, this year, I don't know if if I can ever recall a year that China is going to grow about 4%. We're going to grow about 6%. So the U.S. is actually going to grow more than China. So it's super interesting what's happening globally as well. So all of these things are kind of worry points. And I can list a whole dozen more if you want to, but I don't want to look at it as glass half empty. As an investor, I always try to look for the opportunities. And I look for, for example, today we had this wonderful Merck news, and that is actually very positive in that it does seem like you can take a pill and you can reduce the shocks to your system on COVID. It reduces the hospitalizations. It's a positive. It means we can start to feel more comfortable about the reopen names, the reopening of the economy. And then speaking of the economy, this past week, we've had a whole ton of different data points that are showing we're hanging in just fine. What is just fine? GDP at 6.7%. The ISM manufacturing numbers beat expectations. So manufacturing is doing well. I look at, I'm not going to get too wonky on you, but within the ISM manufacturing, there's this subcomponent called new orders. New orders have been 60 or above for the 15th consecutive month. Why is that important? It's important because it's a leading indicator. It's a tell of where earnings are going to go in the coming months and quarters. So it's good that at 60, anything over 50, we, we see as expansion. We've had the University of Michigan sentiment numbers snap back right? We were very concerned for the last couple of readings that those numbers were softer. Nope. Consumer has gotten a little bit more confident. The savings rate is at 9.4%. Historical average is five. So there's a trillion dollars of pent up demand possibly. And retail sales are 10% above pre-pandemic levels. So consumer feels good. Manufacturing feels good. Not everything is perfect because I wanted to list the worry points first. But I do think the economy is on track to continue to see above trend. And why you're seeing that rotation is when you see above trend, you see a little bit more inflation, you see a little bit higher interest rates that tends to bode well for a little bit more value versus growth, cyclicality versus defensive growth, and reopen names. And I would just say one last thing is just that watch inflation, because I know that the Fed believes it is transitory. It's not all transitory. Wages are going higher, which is a good thing for the consumer, but that's something to watch from a corporate profitability point of view. Shelter costs are going higher. Even commodity prices are starting to kind of turn back up. 
Great point. And don't worry about getting wonky with us. We can take it and we love it. You write a lot about your barbell approach that's looking at the reopening trade, cyclical companies that will benefit from that. At the same time, focusing, as you said, on big growth companies, big tech stocks in, in some cases across their sectors that have that total adjustable market share. So you got these two gears going at the same time. Super important at a time like now where you do get mixed messages, right? Absolutely. And that's why when you do get these rotations, you don't fall so far behind your benchmark or just so far behind in performance in general. Because again, nobody can time things. I mean, if you can find a way for me to time perfectly, I mean, I would not be here in this, in this seat. But I will say this, I think at any given time, I will put more or less into value versus growth. So the S&P 500 is primarily a growth index, right? Oh, yeah. 70% of the stocks. But, and that's my benchmark. So if I tell you that I very much believe that value and economically sensitive and cyclical companies are going to outperform the defensive secular technology companies or growth companies, that's a big bet I'm making. Right now, I'm about 70% cyclical and reopen and 30% tech and secular growth. I don't want to give up on tech on secular growth because I think the total addressable markets are just too compelling. Why I'm 30% only in kind of FANG and, and some technology and some healthcare growth names. Why? Because I do like these total addressable markets, but why am I only 30%? Because they have had a nice run and they're not cheap and they are overowned. And I've never really made a ton of money and created alpha when everybody owns the same thing. But that being said, AI is a trillion dollar total addressable market by the end of the decade. Cloud is a, to- a trillion dollar total addressable market by the end of the decade. And there's only 15% of workloads that are in the cloud. That's why the growth is there, right? Wearables is going to be a $50 trillion market by the end of the decade. That's a huge number. And then retail e-commerce in 2019, it was a $3.9 trillion total addressable market. That's going to go to $7 trillion by 2027. So there are all of these important growth dynamics that are happening that I don't want to miss out on. I just want to be more stock specific and selective on a valuation basis. But I am 70% on the other side because believe it or not, the reopen and the cyclicals have actually lagged pretty substantially. Some of them are still down 10, 15, 20% from the May highs. So that's why I think into the end of the year, you may have a little bit of a catch up kind of trade. Well, we like to point out that even though the S&P 500 is up 15, 16% so far year to date, despite the choppiness recently, there are bear markets all over the market if you want to look around, right? If you want to go down into the small and the mid caps, you'll see them there. You'll see them in retail, you'll see them in luxury retail, some consumer discretionary. So you can find them if you look, and that's why you got to be selective. And that's kind of your job. Uh, what do you do though when a sector or a stock gets a little too heavy? You like it, you like it for all the reasons you identified, but it's just heavy and it's kind of worrying you because it's overweight there. It's maybe over what your parameters might be. How do you level out? That's oh, an excellent question. And it's the hardest thing. Buying to me is so much easier than selling as an investor, right? Because I want to take the profits and never apologize for taking a profit, by the way. And I know that was that comes from my, my friend, Jim Kramer from many years ago, working with him. But I will say that if you believe in the long term, it's great to trim, but you do want to look at why are you in the name? Has, has the story and the thesis as to why you bought the stock to begin with, has it changed in any way other than valuation? That's a very big question to ask. And if you feel comfortable, all right, it's a little rich. I could trim a little bit here, right size it is what I call it. Fine. And you can be tactical, 
but this is what we do for a living. And so some of your listeners may, may not be doing this for a living. And so it's a little bit more of a challenge. Let the experts do what they do. And I try to hold on to what I, what I own because I've done so much work and I feel really confident and I would rather hold on if it kind of pulls back to buy more. Again, if this, if the story is the same, if something has changed, if something has gone awry, management has left or they've lost control of costs or they're losing market share, those are big reasons to sell a stock. Of course, I don't want to sell a stock when it's down a tremendous amount. Stay patient, figure it out, stay calm, don't act too quickly. But I do think that selling is hard and I try not to do too much of it. Stephanie, you have your platform on CNBC, obviously, you're on the Power Lunch and some other programs. You have the other media outlets. You're also speaking to all the RIAs that are part of the Hightower family, right? What kinds of questions are they getting, these advisors, from their clients? They got to be kind of similar to what you're hearing in general, but you know, it's very specific from RIA to RIA and family to family. For certain, they want to know, uh, I get an enormous amount of questions, believe it or not, on the 60-40 mix. Is 60-40 debt, meaning the asset allocation, 60% equities, 40% uh, fixed income? And I say kind of, right? But you don't necessarily want to go, you want to maybe stay 60% in equities, your point on compounding, and it's very powerful. On the 40, that's where the nuances are, right? Maybe you want to be 20% in the true fixed income, but then maybe the other 20, you want to be more creative. Is that alternatives, right? That's a little bit longer duration. Is it convertibles? Is it higher yielding bonds? Not necessarily junk, because I'm not comfortable so much on the junk side of things. Is it equities that act like bonds, right? That have high yields or growing yields? Is it dividend growth? It all depends on what they are after. And every advisor has a different set of clients and different needs. But that is one of the main questions that I get a lot. I also get, is this as good as it gets? And I said, this is as good as the growth gets. This is, we've definitely seen peak growth, but I believe that we are going to continue to see above trend growth, at least for the next year or so. But I I watch inflation. I watch it very, very carefully. Because I, again, I just don't think it's all transitory. And, and that's something that we want to be mindful of. We want to be mindful of the Fed. They ask about the Fed a lot. Is the Fed behind the curve? Is the Fed, is the Fed going to get it right? Personally, I think they're a little behind the curve, but at least the taper talk has started. And at least the chairman has, has figured out that, well, yeah, not all the inflation is transitory after all. Shocker. I've been saying it for a while. Not, at, not all of it is, but he's realized it. And they're talking it through and they're going to change policy as a result, as, as again, we should embrace it. It's good. But they do ask, is, is this as good as it gets? And I say, find me another alternative of where to invest. Where are we going to go? You want to go to China and invest in China with all the things that they're doing? And you wake up one day and all of a sudden you don't ever hear from Jack Ma from Alibaba ever again and or Evergrande issues out of the blue or the gaming companies. I'm not saying you don't want to invest in China. I just don't know if you necessarily want to be in China with Chinese companies. I like US companies who have exposure to China for the long term. Do you want to be in Europe where their fixed income yields are actually starting to rise very nicely for the first time in a very, very long time? So do you want to go there? Do you want to try Latin America? Because they are seemingly out of some of the darkest days from COVID. So they ask a lot about where to invest and and what to do. And I, and again, I say, I don't really have an alternative for you. I feel the best about us, but if you want to dabble around the world, I get that too. You want to have diversification. And so they are very, very mindful of 
you know, we've made good money over the last several years and it's not normal, right? Like it's really not like not normal. When I got in the business, when you got in the business, I think we would be happy with a five or six or 7% return in the, in the S&P. Now all of a sudden we're at like 13, 14, 15, 20%. I mean, it's a lot, it's a big number. So, but I say just stay calm and stay long-term and, and stay diversified. Well, to your point, so many retail investors joined the stock market in the past two years. A lot of them did it to trade and make fast money. We saw that in crypto. We saw it in meme stocks. You saw it when their folks were at home trading stimulus money, perhaps, or trading the money they weren't spending when they if they weren't going out. But it's not a surprise, Stephanie, that a recent survey showed that so many investors feel the stock market is rigged. This is where you work. This is what I cover. We hear this all the time after a while. Market swings, but is it different this time, or is it just kind of what we hear every every time we go through a cycle like the one we've been in? Yeah, I don't think the market is rigged. I think there's certain parts of the market that make zero sense with the meme stocks, for example, when stocks are not trading on fundamentals, but they're you know trading on what short interest is and, and that sort of thing. And I focus on fundamentals. And when you focus on fundamentals, like I mentioned before, you know, owning the number one company and doing all of the work on the balance sheets and the valuations and where I think the modeling can go and earnings, if I think that after I've done the fundamentals, that earnings have a shot at growing on a CAGR basis of like 20%, 15, 20%, maybe it's five or 6%, whatever it is. If I feel good about where earnings are going, where the valuations are, usually at the end of the day, stocks follow profits. I mean, that's a really, really old fashioned way of saying, just do the fundamentals, keep your head down. And if the market, I don't know where the market is rigged, at least not in the world that I live in and, and, and the equities that I follow and in my portfolio, the stocks that I own, I try to get the noise out and just say, this is what I know. And I only know it because I do hard work and hopefully I get it more right than, than wrong. So valuable and so valuable to kind of go with what you know. Numbers don't lie a lot of the time. Let's go out on this, Stephanie. What's your favorite investing term? You know, we were built on our investing terms here at Investopedia. What's the one that just speaks to your heart the most? Free cash flow. Free cash flow. If you don't have free cash flow, you can't grow your business. You can't buy back stock. You can't increase your dividend. You can't do M&A to grow your business. You don't have enough money to, to grow CapEx. So I am a big fan of the free cash flow. My second one would be margins. If margins are depressed and you have a good top line, you get operating leverage. So those are a couple different ideas. Those are great. And we should make t-shirts with those because they are you know, the tried and true, the blue ribbon terms here at Investopedia. People love those. And it's not a surprise that they're your favorites. I'm such a big fan, Stephanie. Stephanie Link, the Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Advisors. Folks, you can follow her on Twitter, read her notes on the Hightower site or her columns on Think Advisor. And thank you so much for joining the Express. It was a real delight to have you here. Thank you so much. This was fun. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Cyril in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, great town with great food. Cyril suggests direct indexing as this week's term, and we like that term because it combines the magic of passive investing with the strategy of active investing, lets you work on both muscle groups at the same time. Well, according to my favorite website, direct indexing allows investors to buy all the shares in an index so they directly own every security, although they are still tracking with the index. In a direct index, an investor is actively trimming or adding to their positions to take advantage of the tax benefits on individual stock investing like tax loss harvesting. 
Direct indexing used to only be for big institutions or the ultra-wealthy, but the rise of online brokers, zero commissions on stock trades, and the ability to buy fractional shares in companies has made this strategy available to most U.S. investors. You can also customize your own index and have it your way. Are you an ESG investor? Well, screen out the companies you don't want in the index. Do you feel a sector rotation coming? Heavy up where you want and lighten up where you don't. But keep in mind, direct indexing requires you to pay attention to what's happening with all the stocks that you own and any expenses that you might incur. Asset-based fees for direct indexing are generally higher than mutual funds or ETFs. Smart suggestion, Cyril. You'll be getting a pair of the Midnight Blue and Black Investopedia socks in the mail, and we'd like to see you sporting those at Dempsey's Restaurant the next time you head out for some of the best gumbo in the South. Laissez le bon temps rouler. In honor of Cyril's smart term suggestion, we're going to let Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard and the grandfather of index investing, take us out this week. Here's Bogle speaking to the National Press Club about index investing and what it takes to get it right back in 2001 idea of buying and holding forever and not trying to make adjustments requires that you've gotten it right in the first place that you can only you can only hold tight if you've bought right if you will and that is to say have an asset allocation that has something to do with uh, how many years you have to accumulate money how much resources you have at stake uh, how much income you need and how much courage you have to ride out the peregrinations of the market so you've got to take all that into account from that simple statement Bogle was a one of one, and he changed the industry forever. Thanks for riding with us again this week, and special thanks to Ameriprise Financial for sponsoring The Express. Ameriprise Financial Advisors know their clients' goals and provide personalized financial advice to help them navigate both today and tomorrow. Visit Ameriprise.com slash check to see if you're getting the financial advice that you need. Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. And let's face our fears this October and prepare ourselves for whatever lies ahead. Stay humble, stay healthy, and stay invested. We'll talk again a little further on down the line.